Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. His deepest need was that people should like him. An admirable trait that, in a spaniel or a whore, not, I think, in a prime minister. And we've done him a favour too, if he did but know it. He was in the trap and screaming from the moment he took office. We've simply put the poor bastard out of his agony. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. So let's not involve ourselves in any squeamishness, all right? Because this is just the start. That Dominic Sandbrook was Francis Urquhart. Chief oh, that, was, that, was, that was chilling. That was absolutely <laughs> chilling. As played by Ian Richardson in um, the BBC 1990 drama House of Cards, which was screened at exactly the moment that Mrs. Thatcher was being defenestrated by the Tory party. And the reason that I've used that as an introduction um, and the reason that we're doing this special Rest is History episode is because uh, the Tory party is engaged, it seems, in another <laughs> process of regicide. So we are recording this at quarter past nine on Monday, the 6th of June. And 15 minutes ago, uh, the results of a vote of confidence on the Prime Minister Boris Johnson were announced and he won it, but kind of not brilliantly. Yeah, two one one. He he won two one one, two hundred and eleven votes, uh, and one hundred and forty eight Tory MPs said they had no confidence in him. So that's forty one percent of his parliamentary party said they didn't have confidence in him. And for context, that's the worst performance I think by a Conservative leader in a in a confidence vote in, in my lifetime. So it's worse, crucially, than Theresa May, his predecessor in 2019 because she won 200 votes with 117 against so the percentages were in her favor relative to boris johnson so he is you know with with four out of ten tory mps lacking confidence in him he is shall we say at the very least grievously wounded well dominic i i have a metaphor here drawn from the world of natural history which i know you're a big fan of big fan so komodo dragons the world's largest kind the world's largest lizard um they have incredibly toxic um teeth and breath and tongues and all they have to do is give uh you know a, a passing mammal uh, a deer or whatever a little nip and all the bacteria get to work and then the komodo just kind of follows the deer the deer slowly gets more and more sick and then it collapses and then the komodo dragon eats it um oh. so who's the komodo dragon jeremy hunt in this well, I, suppose, I suppose the Tory party, I guess. Yes. So I think this result does justify perhaps looking at the history of prime ministerial downfalls. Definitely. Um, Definitely and not. you, I, I've been in the library all day looking at the murder of Caesars and things, but <laughs> British yeah. prime ministers as well. Very appropriate. <laughs> Very appropriate. But you have been drawing up your, your list of the top 10 prime ministerial yes. defenestrations. Because obviously most, most prime ministers by and large resign because they've lost an election exactly or they retire or they so, retire sort of stanley baldwin style um but be you're right there so there are there are two ways that people normally go either they go like stanley baldwin so they retire at a time of their own choosing that's pretty rare that gladstone as well i suppose you would say or they uh, are defeated uh, they lose an election and then that's the end of their premierships that's what you might call the jim callahan model or the john major or gordon brown but Obviously, the most enjoyable ones, as your House of Cards analogy suggests, the most enjoyable ones are the regicides, the internal party coups. And anybody who was alive in 1990 who remembers that amazing symbiosis, it was a incredible, downfall it? on the news and House of Cards playing at exactly that point. I just watched the opening again. Yeah. And it opens with Francis Urquhart sitting in the whip's office, looking at a picture of Mrs. Thatcher and then kind of saying, all careers must end and That's laying right, it yeah. flat on the table. Yeah. And this went out at exactly the time she it's was extraordinary it was timing, extraordinary serendipity. Although, although it's not serendipity though. That's the interesting thing because there was a sense at the end of the 1980s that Mrs. Thatcher's race was run. Um, and I think there's that sense of gathering momentum. There's that sense that in Westminster, the tide has turned against you. You know, you see it reflected in the in the pages of the newspapers day after day. 
and everybody knows it's like the sort of the end of you know a season of game of thrones when everybody knows so-and-so's head is going to fall a, a quickening in the praetorian a camp exactly yes exactly. exactly yes exactly. okay so that being so um you've drawn up your list top 10 yeah what is your what is your first one so the Are first we do one, this chronologically right yeah let's do it chronologically um and let's the first one is the first one so it's sir robert walpole so robert walpole as most of our listeners will know um the first prime minister he becomes prime minister in 1721 um, so he's been prime by 1742. He's been prime minister Tom for more than 20 years. He's a great character. He's quite Boris Johnsonian. So he's, um, he's very earthy and he makes a virtue of his kind of, of his humanity. And he sort of says he's no, you know, he's no Puritan. No he's no, yeah. yeah, he's no reformer or all this sort of thing. Um, he's incredibly corrupt. He's basically, he has made Britain rich, but he's also kept Britain out of foreign wars, which has upset a lot of people, um, the so-called Patriot Whigs. And there's a definite sense, I think, by the beginning of the 1740s that, you know, he's old. The momentum has has moved, turned against him. He is forced slightly against his will to get Britain into war with Spain in the War of Jenkins's Ear. Right, yes. Which you may well, remember one of our from favourite wars. <laughs> you may remember from our episode on weird wars. Yeah. Um, so Jenkins was a he was a British merchant who had his ear chopped off, yeah. supposedly by the Spanish years absolutely. before, wasn't it? Absolutely disgraceful Spanish behaviour, <laughs> um, which was obviously obviously the pretext for this war, basically because you know we wanted to be to supplant Spain um, in the Caribbean and so on. Um, but that doesn't go terribly well. So we lost the Battle of Cartagena in 1741, um, and here's the interesting thing that's a, that's that sets a bit of a sort of template. So. In January 1742, there was a, a move in the in Parliament to have a commission to investigate the handling of the war. And that was basically seen, that's an attack, a full-scale attack on Walpole, because Walpole is, is administering the war. And that was defeated by only three votes. Okay. So in a way... A Pyrrhic, a Pyrrhic victory. That, that's, your, that's, what, that's what so often happens in these stories. You get a Pyrrhic victory, and then just a little later... The final blow kind of comes, and that's exactly what happened. And the the sort of Komodo dragon in this, the sort of final blow of the Komodo dragon in this case, is it's a it's very bizarre. It's an argument about a by election in Chippenham. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So that's one of the weird things about about old old political history is that often the sort of the trigger is the most banal. But but by elections, I mean you know, so hanging over Boris Johnson now are the results of the two by elections -elections. coming up in the Red Wall and in in the Tory heartland. So actually by elections are a kind of crucial markers of political health, aren't they? So what had happened is that in seventeen forty one there had been a general election which as as so often happened in those days took about eighteen months or something. (laughs) There had been a general election and Chippenham had two seats, had two MPs. You know, obviously Manchester or Birmingham yeah, have none. <laughs> Chippenham has two. So Chippenham had um, two, and they'd both been won by the opposition, um, by sort of patriots or Tories. And um, uh, the government, the, the, the government, two government candidates said they'd been very hard done by and it had been rigged and all this sort of thing. And um, in, in the end of January, there was a vote in the House of Commons to sort of have to, to throw out the Chippenham MPs and to have by-elections, which the government hoped they would win. And it became a confidence measure, and uh, Walpole lost it. Do you know how many how many votes he uh, he lost it by? Tom, no, he lost it by one. Oh, by one vote. Oh, two, three, he lost two, three, five, two, three, six. That was the result. And if he'd won it, if he'd if he'd won it by one, would he have no, staggered he'd, on? No, he he was toast anyway. Because the, that that thing that happened. James Callaghan had a metaphor in 1979, very famously, just before he lost to Margaret Thatcher. He said, there are times in politics when there's a sea change. And no matter what you do, you know, as prime minister, the tide is against you. And, and, and so clearly he- for Walpole, um, the tide was against him. So he resigned um, about, it's about 10 days later. Uh, he was, George II burst into tears when um when I wonder Walpole if the resigned. Queen will do the same when... Well, when Boris, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> she'd be too busy uh, eating normally sandwiches. And- Walpole was given a, a pension of £4,000 a year, That's which was nice. a colossal, yeah, just an astronomical it. amount of money. He went off in- and bought gorgeous art, didn't he? Which then he got did, bought he by died, Catherine the Great. He died quite soon afterwards. Um, I, uh, I can't actually remember how long afterwards, but it was quite soon afterwards anyway. Um, and do you know who succeeded him, Tom? I, I know you're very familiar with our second prime minister. Um, can't remember. 
I, I, you know, I had to look it up. I don't think anybody listening to this will know. It was the Earl of Wilmington. The Earl of Wilmington, of course. Yes. A name to conjure with. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, so Walpole, as in so many things, blazes the path. Yes. That's the template. Uh, so that's number one. Number two. So number two is a prime minister who is often regarded as one of our worst, absolute worst prime ministers. And American listeners, whenever we talk about prime ministers, would always say on Twitter, well, obviously your worst was Lord North. Lord North, um, yeah. Do you know, I discovered while researching this that Lord North wasn't actually his official title. It wasn't. It was it? only a sort of courtesy title, and his real title was the Earl of Guildford. <laughs> well, Guildford got off luckily there. It did. So Lord North, like Walpole, had been in a very, very long time. So he'd been in since 1770. So we're into the reign of George III now. Uh, it's now 1782. The most famous thing of Lord North, obviously, he completely fails to conciliate the American colonies and basically presides over the American War of Independence, which goes very badly. Um, and this is an interesting one because Lord North is clearly not personally solely responsible for the loss of the American colonies. But he's a good example of the way in which a, pri a particular individual um, who who appears to have been kind of effortlessly all conquering can become this sort of totem, well, the sacrificial lamb. I, I'm mixing my metaphors horrendously here, but I mean it's it's a humiliating collapse. I mean it's a humiliating blow to British prestige. It's the collapse of his foreign policy. So it is. yeah, and if he's had an effortless rise, you could conceivably compare him to Anthony Eden. Who, who like, I mean, I know he doesn't resign immediately after yeah. the Suez crisis, but he get, kind of goes off and has recuperative holiday in Caribbean, doesn't he? But then he resigns. And, they, and David Cameron. Well, I was going to say David Cameron might not be a bad analogy. But I think interest, so David, funnily enough, David Cameron is quite similar in the sense that there's this sort of effortlessness and this sort of chillaxing, um, which which at first people thought of as, as a refreshing change after Gordon Brown throwing remote controls at people or whatever and biting his nails. But um, but then becomes a stick with which to beat him. Well, Lord North, um, he's also accused of being sort of indolent and and sort of well. Cameron know. and Lord North have fa quite similar faces. I mean, kind well, of. This is the thing with Lord North. Rubiconed and round. And this is the thing with Lord North. Lord North looks like a very fat child in a wig. <laughs> he's really not flattered by his <laughs> his portrait. And the weird thing is that actually, I believe. The consensus among those historians who still do 18th century political history is that Lord North was actually quite a good prime minister. Right. And he, the, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography says no prime minister in our history has ever had such command of parliament. He was a sort of financial wizard and very popular and all well, this sort of thing. Can, I mean, Cameron also had a kind of aura of, I mean, he commanded the house and. He did. Yeah. He, he did. Was I that's regarded as a. He looked, like a man who would, he looked like a man who could never lose, and then he did. And then he spectacularly <laughs> did, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so, um, so what happens with Lord North is um, the British have surrendered at Yorktown in October 1781. The war is quite clearly lost, not least because of French intervention, which makes it really impossible to keep sending troops to, the, to North America. Um, but the war has always been opposed. I mean, that's one thing that we often forget about the American Civil War is there are lots of people in Britain who actually – there are quite a lot of people who actually support the Americans because mm -hmm. they don't regard them as foreigners. They're regarded as a kind of almost a British civil war. Um, at the end of February uh, 1782, there's a motion to end further prosecution of the war in North America. And this is basically equivalent of your Walpole Chippenham vote. And Nord Lord North loses that vote by 234 to 215 in the House of Commons. And that basically... Um, is the end of him. So he, again, in that sort of rather strange way that happens with sort of early British political history, there's then a sort of, the resignation which you would expect to come the next day actually comes a month later. So there's a lot of sort of fucking okay. around. So he takes longer than Cameron. There's a lot of, hang yeah, there's a lot of hanging around and presumably sort of gambling, port drinking. Well, that's, so that's more Anthony Eden. Though. Betting on hot air balloons, whatever. <laughs> yes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, doesn't Lord North make a, a slight comeback? He does. Yes, he does make a bit of a comeback, actually. So he's still involved in senior politics years afterwards. He succeeded. So the, the, the baton passes to the, so to the people who had supported the Americans, basically, who had been against the war. So first to Lord Rockingham and then to Lord Shelburne. But North hangs around for a bit afterwards. He's not completely discredited. So in that sense, he's Sir Alec Douglas Hume, Tom. Ah, oh, yeah. Very good. Who, yes. That's your Lord North analogy. Yeah. Okay. So that, so that's Lord North. Um, and then the, your third choice is actually the, the one that I thought of immediately, because of course, you know, you could stop being prime minister, not just because you've lost a face of confidence or whatever, yeah, but because you're dead. <laughs> yes. Yes. So your, your third one is the only <laughs> British prime minister have, to have been assassinated, Spencer Percival. Spencer Percival. 
again, a man who's slightly hard done by by his portrait, I think. Because if you look at Spencer Percival, he looks incredibly boring. And I think actually he was incredibly boring. So he would get sort of points today because he was a great abolitionist. He was opposed to the um, to slavery. But it doesn't uh, stop him. He gets murdered by an irate scouser, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. So he'd been prime minister um, for two and a half years. Uh, he was a Pittite. So he's a he's a disciple of William Pitt, very much a friend of the rest of his history. Who, well, so so Pitt also, I mean, he dies in office. He does indeed. So, through, so that's another. Through gout, ulcers, and, and being a three-bottle man. Yes, he's um, drinking, or is it claret he gets prescribed? I think it was port, wasn't it? It was, was port, wasn't it? Yes, three he, bottles yes, of port a day yes. in but order it, to deal with his ulcers <laughs> and his gout. <laughs> and his alcoholism, <laughs> prescribed by his doctor. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, days. So, Spencer Percival, who's a very boring man. Well, actually, Pitt was quite chilly, apart from the drinking. But Spencer Percival seems quite a boring man, although he does have 12 children, uh, aged between 3 and 20 at the, at the time of his death, which is which is quite a family holiday. Anyway, he's um, uh, he's been prime minister. He's not terribly interesting. Um, obviously, we're in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, there's a lot of partly because of the war, or largely because of the wars. The economy is in a bad way. There's lots of unemployment. There's lots of industrial unrest in the north. Lud- Luddism, the Luddites are in full cry. So they're, and, try- they're, they're indignant weavers smashing yeah, up looms smashing and up, things. Smashing up looms, exactly. Yeah. So, so Spencer Percival is, is on his way to a parliamentary committee to investigate the Luddites. And he, on the 11th of May, 1812, and he goes into the House of Commons lobby and a man called John Bellingham is there. Now, John Bellingham, as you, as you describe him, an indignant scouser. John Bellingham is a failed merchant who's been imprisoned for bankruptcy in Russia. For five believe- years or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, for a long time. For a long time. But he believes that the British government should compensate him yeah. for his, uh, because he blames Britain's sort of, uh, he thinks it's our fault for all our sort of orders and council and stuff that have been restricting trade and that he's a victim of our Napoleonic war policy. And he, he went along to the foreign office a few days before and said, he was in a great state about this and and spencer percival personally should be compensating him and the bloke at the foreign office said you must do whatever you think best <laughs> so bellingham went out i've got a gun and anyway he shoots um spencer percival do you know what spencer percival's last words were tom i've been murdered yes he said i oh, do I, I do so uh, i yeah but, but isn't i mean is it it's, it's, it's shakespearean of, i'm slain kind of but isn't bellingham's motive as i remember is that he shoots percival because he wants an opportunity to make his case. Well, that's partly. So, so he will be accused, and then he can stand up in the dock and say, "You all owe me money," <laughs> which, which is a you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an original. It's, it's high a, risk, definitely a high risk policy, but original. Uh, well, this is the thing because Bellingham doesn't. There's so much con- consternation when Spencer Percival has been shot and is shouting, "I've been murdered," and people are sort of milling around and stuff. And an onlookers said Bellingham could have just walked out of the lobby. Yeah, he just sits there. But he doesn't. He sits down on a bench, and he's got and another. Clearly, he's got another loaded pistol with him, and clearly is is very keen to be. And and when he then goes on trial a few days later, he sort of, as you say, Tom, he's he he makes a great point of saying, "Well, you know, I'm the real person. <laughs> <laughs> I've been incredibly badly hard done by yeah, yeah. because my Russian business is. I mean, actually, Dominic Cummings had a business in in Russia. I'll tell you how I know about this is that Lord Byron hears about it. Because he's obviously in the House of Lords, so he he hears yeah. about it and he goes off and uh, he goes to a dinner party where Wordsworth is, and it's the well, first nice. time that Byron and Wordsworth have met. And Byron bursts in and says the Prime Minister's been shot. So it's the first time that Wordsworth and Byron meet, and they they kind of they bond over. That's a good fact, Tom. Over the and then they have a massive bust up afterwards. But uh, that that's a great that's a great book in that, isn't it? Yeah, Spencer Percival, yeah. John Bellingham, Byron, Wordsworth. Wordsworth, it's all there. It's all happening. It's all there. Okay. All so, human so life that's is all, so that's so so death is obviously a very, very dramatic way. That, of, that's an outlier of though, isn't it? That is an yes. outlier. Okay, so much more common is um some spectacular parliamentary bust up, which is yeah. precisely what we get with your fourth choice, who is actually a friend of Lord Byron, so continuing the Byronic theme, Robert Peel, who was at Harrow Robert with Peel. Byron. Of course he was. So Robert Peel, he's twice prime minister, 1830s and 1840s, son of a manufacturer. So he's the first kind of industrial representative of industrial England of the Industrial Revolution to be prime minister. Um, born, in Ber- born in Bury and then Tamworth, grows up in Tamworth. We discussed before, didn't we, whether he would have had, there's some discussion about Robert Peel's accent, whether yeah. he had a sort of Staffordshire accent, which I like to think he did. Um, but he's the sort of, Founding father, in some ways, a liberal conservatism with his Tamworth Manifesto of 1834, which said, 
we just shouldn't be mindless ultra reactionaries. <laughs> yeah. um, we should try and accommodate sometimes just to the modern world. Just be kind. Yeah, well, I don't know whether he's quite be kind. Uh, yeah. He's all about EDI, is uh, Robert Peel. Anyway, so Robert Peel, um, his big thing is that, he, I mean, he really is the sort of Jeremy Hunt of the of his day because he's much more emollient than, than some Tories. Um, and his big sort of trans, I mean, he has... A, Does he have a fully sprung ballroom? Which is what Jeremy Hunt has. A fully sprung ballroom? Yeah, at his house. Jeremy, Hunt's Jeremy, Hunt, Jeremy Hunt has rich. Own... He has his own ballroom, fully Does sprung. He have... He's a very, very keen ballroom dancer. He looked. He, I, I can well believe he's a ballroom yes, dancer. Yes, very good on Strictly. Very smooth. Well, maybe anyway. if this business doesn't work out for him, then <laughs> Strictly <laughs> awaits. Actually, Boris Johnson is such a Strictly wannabe, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, but he'd no. He, I mean, he'd never get past evening round now, would he? Well, he might be, be a sort of John Sargent and Whittacombe type. Yeah, you know, people. Would, I know. I don't think so. I think maybe enough time would. Anyway, I, I listen. Know, we're, 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 we're anyway. Let's stick to Robert Peel. Sorry. Yeah. So Robert Peel. Yes, he's had two sort of semi conversions. One is on Catholic emancipation, which he's become a believer in, and the other is the, the classic one. Is he was the Tory party was the party of protectionism, of trade barriers to stop um, cheap food coming in to to destroying to, uh, England's green and pleasant land to protect mm-hmm. landowners' interests. And Peel, partly because of the Great Famine in Ireland, but also because obviously there's a huge demand for sort of cheap food from the growing cities. He decides that they have to, Britain has to change, that it has to ditch the corn laws and embrace free trade. And what he basically does, I mean, in some ways, the parallel, I suppose, that people sometimes give is, is Theresa May. So we'll come to Theresa May later, but she's caught between two wings of the party and sort of ground between these two great millstones. And that basically is what happens with Peel, except the difference is that Theresa May slightly refused to choose, whereas Peel basically does choose and abandons the sort of right of his party. Also, I mean, Peel is an incredibly charismatic and eloquent man. Is he that charismatic, though? Yes, I think he is. I think he is. I think people really admire him. They do admire him, but I think they respect him more than they... Love him, if you know. Do you, do you not think? I, think I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, I, I don't know. You'd know better than me. But I always have the impression. Byron certainly thought he was a, a wonderful man. And I Byron think you, I wasn't think easily being, impressed. I think Byron is misleading you, Tom. Maybe could be. I, I mean, he Byron's, misled a lot of people. Byron's vampiric ways of um, <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe um, that's it. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so basically, by February, where are we? February eighteen forty six. Peel has has said, let's let's ditch the corn laws, let's have free trade. 231 of his own MPs turn against Robert Peel. I mean, that really is a rebellion. And to get um, the repeal of the corn laws through, he has to rely basically on Whig and radical votes. So he's basically no longer dependent in any meaningful way upon his own party. Um, but his, cap- his political capital is hemorrhaging all the time. And the most famous moment, which you alluded to, was the 15th of May, when there's this Absolutely, I wish I reread today this absolutely blazing attack on him by Benjamin, the young Benjamin Disraeli, who at that point is very reactionary. This is one of those things that you know you, you sort of read, oh, this blazing parliamentary performance, and then you actually read it, and it's, it's just, a bit a bit limp. It's as dull as ditch water. So he accused Peel of huckstering tyranny. He said he was a burglar of other people's intellect. He said, if you scour the records from the days of the conquest, there is no statesman who has committed political petty larceny on such That's a scale. great, isn't it? Um, I love Disraeli. So this kind of made Disraeli's name as this sort of great flamboyant orator. It basically just, everyone laughs and everyone has a whale of a time and, and Peel is sunk, basically. So Peel survives for just over another month and then he's defeated again over one of these bills that's sort of subsequently forgotten. So it's an Irish coercion bill, which mm. is about sort of law and order in Ireland. He's defeated on that and that is the end of him. So he's another example of this is another kind of Komodo dragon. It is, scenario. exactly, because he's yeah. limping on. Peel is yeah. limping on for the best part of six months, but he is finished. It's clear that he cannot continue. He, he falls off his horse very soon afterwards, Disraeli, of course, eventually becomes prime minister and steals all Peel's ideas. So Yes. And so, I mean, in a way, obliquely, he's destroyed by tensions within the, the United Kingdom, between the constituent parts. Ireland, yeah. So, 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 yes. So people being kind of brought down by arguments over what the relationship of Ireland to Great Britain should be. This is then a well, thing that, 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 definitely that, that is runs a theme. through the rest of the 19th century. Um, but with Peel, I think you can argue that Peel's slightly brought down by his own integrity, by his own principle. Um, I don't think that's something that people will say about our current 
Um, <laughs> no, Prime Minister no. Tom. Whatever they think no. of him, they they won't say that Boris Johnson was a man toppled by his but, own. Uh, but I mean, Gladstone, Gladstone is Gladstone is basically destroyed by Ireland as well, isn't he? He's not destroyed. He's he's. Well, he resigns over it, and- not ultimately. So he does. You're right. That one of his premierships. I mean, Gladstone has. I think four premierships. Yeah. And the I third think one. He, I think it's his third one. Yeah. But he does them do a, have a comeback in the 1890s when he's aged 380. So maybe Boris can look forward to that. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. Boris and Gladstone are the two most <laughs> unlike prime ministers. <laughs> well, so, so yes. Okay. So our fifth on the topic of people who are actually quite like Boris. Yeah. Um, so your fifth is, is Asquith. Yeah. Herbert Herbert Asquith. Henry Asquith. Prime Minister in the first half of the, of the First World War, who yes. was brought down by a very Boris-esque character. A very Boris-esque character. So Asquith, um, who's very much a – well, he's a he's a friend of certainly this half of the rest is history. Uh, Asquith is a man who famously personifies the effortless superiority of the Balliol man, Tom, mm-hmm. um, which I know you'll, you'll enjoy that reference. Uh, Asquith has been Prime Minister since 1908. Uh, he has presided over all kinds of reforms. He's very well-dressed man, isn't he? He's, well, he's very well turned out at the beginning, but he's distinctly shabby, I would say, at the, is he? At the end. Is it? And he has, he has unfortunate, he has. Well, his clothes are, his clothes are, are still, but he's sort of, he's, he's obviously drinking a lot, Asquith. So and having all, uh, unsuitable relationships. Yes. And, and writing letters to girls and having picnics with people too young to picnicking with and reading a bit novels like during President battles. And, yes. And there was these, there were claims also that, that Asquith was a little bit handsy. Um, mm. But I don't know whether that's true or not. I mean, certainly by comparison with Lloyd George, Asquith is an absolute. Okay, so, tell us about, of, t- 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 so Lloyd George is basically Asquith's deputy. Yes, he's his chancellor. He's Dan his right hand man. He's the radical firebrand, the, the Welsh wizard, the the people, the author of the People's Budgets in the Edwardian period, um, the sort of scourge of the Tories and the dukes and the upper classes, and they've been running the government. But in but they've obviously taken Britain into the First World War in 1914. In May 1915, they have had to form a coalition with the Tories because they've been attacked for not having enough shells and for making a mess of Gallipoli and stuff like that. So Asquith. In 1915, 1916, his authority really, I would say, is leaking away almost daily. You know, by inviting the Tories in. Do you say like air from a Zeppelin? I would say like air from a Zeppelin, Tom. That's a very nice, um, mm-hmm. that's a very nice parallel. Um, so, and he's had to, he's had to accept things that he, his heart isn't in, for example, conscription at the beginning of 1916. Yeah, not liberal. Um, it's not liberal, exactly. So the Liberal Party and the Liberal Creed. It's kind of crumbling under the pressure of the First World War. So in that sense, it's a little bit like Peel. He's he's sort of trapped in this situation where the tectonic plates are shifting and, and he's going to end up the victim of it. But actually what happens, he really is completely and utterly stabbed in the back because Lloyd George conspires with the Tories and with the press lords, as they were called. So that's Lord Northcliffe, Lord Rothermere and Lord Beaverbrook, as he became, I think, um, they they have a sort of they have a little plot that basically they'll keep Asquith on as a sort of as a, an impotent figurehead, and that Lloyd George will really run the government in a war, through a war council, and they basically present this to Asquith. Asquith doesn't like it, not surprisingly. Um, Lloyd George walks out, says, "I won't serve under you." Then you know I'm out, knowing really that the Tories will back him, Lloyd George. Um, Asquith can't lead a government without Lloyd George and or without the Tories or the Unionists, as they were called. So that's the end of Asquith has to resign. And um, Lloyd George then becomes prime minister with Tory support. And that destroys the Liberal Party from that point on. So Lloyd George, who is an absolutely, I've said it before, I'll say it again. He is an absolutely terrible man. Mm. I, I know the Welsh listeners to the rest is history, of whom there are there are millions, um, don't like this this claim. But Lloyd George, he sold out all his principles. He was a dreadful I mean he makes Boris look like look positively uxorious. Yeah, so so absolutely accepting that. But he was a more effective war leader, wasn't he, than Well some that's actually the jury is a tiny bit out on that. So is it's that- always been said that he's the man who won the war, that he through ruthless determination and his and his peerless chairing of committees he, <laughs> um, and his he, mighty moustache. Yeah. He leads Britain to victory. That's what Hemingway thought, wasn't it? But there Hemingway are, was a big fan. Yeah, but people who like great men and people who fancy, who sort of get off on the idea of, of, of titanic men of ruthless vigour. Yeah. yeah. Sort of Ch- Churchill, Napoleon kind of people. Basically, Andrew Roberts. People like that, they love Lloyd George, and they look at Asquith, and they say, 
what a simpering old fool, you know, reading novels and talking Sitting to girls. gardens and things. Yeah, like. so, but actually, Asquith was a perfectly good prime minister. But, um, but the theme, the th- so the theme there is rivalries within the same party. Yeah, being which knifed I, I guess your... is kind of happening in the 18th century, but I'm not aware of it to the same extent. Uh, and it's there with, is it there with Disraeli and, or is Disraeli seizing his chance to make a name for himself? Well, Disraeli is the, is the classic greasy pole. But Lloyd George and, um, uh, Asquith is the, the classic prime minister and chancellor of the exchequer relationship, yeah, which throughout the 20th century has, you know, been an absolute breeding ground for rivalry. I would say, yes, there's that. And I would also say, beware the mountebank because Disraeli, Lloyd George and Boris Johnson are all prime specimens. Of the, of the sort of the flamboyant parliamentary mountebank who the public love. They think their mountebanks are tremendous characters. characters. Yeah. yeah. But of course, Boris basically did to Theresa May what um, Lord George had done to her. I mean, he wasn't her chancellor, but he, he flounced out, didn't he? And, and sort but, of but it is, I mean, it is a theme and we'll, we'll, I'm sure it, it will is. come up. Well, I know for a fact, I can see your list. It's going to come up again. But the relationship between 10 Downing Street, where the prime minister lives, and 11 Downing Street, where the chancellor of the Strecker lives, it's incendiary. It breeds rivalry. So, so what rivalry. would destroy Boris Johnson right now is if Rishi Sunak came out and said, enough is yeah. enough. You yeah. know, the prime minister has been sent a very clear message. Well, maybe he's I'm, already I'm said out it. Of here. We don't know what's happening while we were. No, we're, it's not, we're like trapped in a bubble, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's like the big brother house. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's just well, like, actually, uh, Love Island is starting tonight, Dominic. So well, it's like we're, we're trapped on the Love Island The tragedy island. of this, I, not just for the country, but for the world, is that we've had to postpone our planned podcast about um, history's greatest Love Island couples because we've been too busy thinking about footling business of prime ministers. Yeah. I know, I know. Anyway, uh, so I think we should go and take a break now. I might yeah. pop down and see what's happening on Love Island. Katie will give me an update, my daughter. Okay. Uh, you can find out what's happening in Downing Street. And when we come back, uh, it will be to look at another prime minister who was toppled during a world war. Oh, so I'm sure you can guess who it is, but uh, we will confirm it when we get back. See you in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back. We are recording this on a historic evening, uh, Monday, the 6th of June. Uh, And Dominic, during the break, I popped down and discovered that uh, Michael Owen's daughter apparently has just shacked up with someone. So that's very exciting. This is on Love Island. That's exciting. On Love Island. And Boris Johnson has announced that um, his disastrous result was extremely positive, decisive and conclusive. So (laughs) so it's all happening. It's all kicking off. (laughs) Um, 
So you've given us five of your top 10. Yeah. We've had uh, Walpole, we've had Lord North, we've had uh, Spencer Percival, we've had Peel, and we've had Asquith. So we've got five to go. Number six, Neville Chamberlain. So number six is Neville Chamberlain. So if you just think about those five, Walpole and Lord North are kind of the same story. They've they've had their time. The, the, t- the tide has turned against them. Um, the game is up. And then once the first blows start to fall, it's obvious they're out. Uh, Spencer Percival obviously shot. <laughs> um, yeah. Robert Peel, the kind of, to some extent, sacrificed his career for what he thought was right. Um, and then number five, Asquith stabbed in the back by um, uh, Shyster. Chamberlain, I would say, is Lord North-esque. He is Lord his entire foreign policy has been torpedoed. Yes, and he basically, is. if if your foreign policy gets torpedoed and you have humiliated your country, or you, you know you've left as prime minister, you've left your country humiliated, then I think you have to go, don't you? Well, here's the thing. So he's Lord North esque in another sense because he's he's Lord North esque in that the image that everybody has of him now is this this sort of weed, this weedy mm-hmm. wing, his wing collar, is completely umbrella. at variance with the reality of the time. So Chamberlain's taken Britain into the Second World War. Obviously, the policy of appeasement has completely failed, which is your analogy, which is the, mm. the American War of Independence. You can imagine how... Yes, what a bitter blow this is to me. What a bitter blow this is to me. Yeah, yeah. All, exactly. So he's taken Britain into war with the least ringing, um, least warlike speech. He, yeah. Vladimir Zelensky, he is not. <laughs> um, but in April 1940, so uh, uh, approval ratings, kind of Gallup ratings are in their infancy. His ratings are actually very, very good. They're, they're north of 60%. Was this rallying to the flag, isn't there? There was a rallying to the flag. There was a sense that Mr. Chamberlain, um, with his mastery his of the accounts... Which he had done his best, I think. Yeah, that he had done... Well, I think that was very important. Actually, I think Chamberlain is much maligned. And I think the fact that he had clearly done his best and tried to avoid war meant that Britain went into the Second World War. I know people have huge arguments about aircraft production. But what it definitely meant is that Britain went into the Second World War united with a consensus that we had done everything possible to avoid war, and now we were determined you know, to wage it and win it, which I don't think would have been the case, actually, if we'd entered war earlier, because there would always been people who said we should have given the yeah. Germans more chances. Anyway, what destroys him, um, his equivalent of Yorktown, is the invasion of Norway, um, the catastrophic debacle of all these people arriving in Norway with the wrong kits and getting lost in the snow and falling into the sea and fighting among themselves or whatever, while the Germans are kind of carrying all before them. Um, then we have this sort of shambolic withdrawal from Norway at the end of April 1940. And then on the 7th and 8th of May, there is this. So this is the, the, the great debate. This is the sort of, the only parallel for this, I think, is the fall of Margaret Thatcher and, uh, and the Jeffrey Howe speech or the mm. Disraeli attack on Robert Peel. So it's the 7th and 8th of May. It's this famous Norway debate that you sort of see immortalized in films and so on. Sir Roger Keyes, the MP for Portsmouth, turns up in his full admiral's uniform and absolutely denounces the the government's handling of Norway. Leo Amory gives the famous speech later called "The Name of God Go." Is that the one? De- yes, depart, I say, and let us have done with you. Um, later used by the Sun, I think, to describe Bobby Robson. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so there's a it, there's a vote of this is a, a in the a name motion. of Allah go wasn't it in the name also. of Allah go after we drew with Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was so um, yeah. so I'm glad we've got that in very important he had a, about a 200 majority Chamberlain but he won that confidence vote by only 81 and at that point it was obvious to him and to everybody that with so many people sort of 120 Tories either abstaining or voting against that the game was up. Chamberlain is a very honourable man, and he basically says to his sort of advisers, I will I will resign unless Labour agree to have a coalition government with me as Prime Minister. Clement Attlee, the Labour leader, consults with the other sort of Labour bigwigs, and they say, no, they won't serve under Chamberlain, but they will serve under somebody else. And Chamberlain, you know, he, he behaves admirably, actually. As a patriot. As a, exactly, very patriotically, he um, he he basically organises the kind of consultation about who will succeed him. On the tenth of May, when he quits, he gives this actually, when you read it, very moving resignation address where he says the whole country must unite around Churchill, his successor. Um, and then Churchill asks him to stay on as Lord President of the Council, which he which he does. Uh, when when Chamberlain goes back into the House of Commons, there's a tremendous ovation. I mean, everybody kind of cheers Which is him. a problem for Churchill, isn't it? Yes, because I mean, actually the Tories are much he, more... It, yeah, it's still Chamberlain's party. Chamberlain recognises this. And in the, the crucial debate between him, Halifax, and Churchill... 
he sides with it's, Chamberlain sides with Churchill. With Churchill, so Chamberlain actually comes out of this story. Yeah. I would say extremely well, as Churchill recognizes. As Churchill and then, recognizes, and, and then when Chamberlain dies, he gives that kind of amazing yeah. threnody on him. Very and Churchill offered him the Order of the Garter. Said, "Would you?" As he was dying, so he's diagnosed with bowel cancer in August 1914. He dies in November. Churchill says, "Would you like the Order of the Garter?" And Chamberlain says, again, I think quite movingly, he says, uh, "No, I would prefer prefer to die plain, Mister Chamberlain, like my father before me." So he does. I once went to a a dinner party where we all had to read something that we found moving. This was part of the, this is what we do in London, Dominic. Yeah, of course. Uh, And I read Churchill's speech on mourning, you know, commemorating Chamberlain. And uh, the woman next door to me was so infuriated by that she physically assaulted me and threw me off my chair. Are you serious? Yeah. I thought you were going to, when you started that anecdote, when you said the woman next to me, I thought, oh, she was, she start crying. But no, well, with rage. She was so furious. Why? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Because even if she was anti-appeasement, the fact that Churchill was saying it would surely, well, that's extraordinary. Maybe she was a a committed fan of Lord Halifax. (laughs) Yes, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I've always had a soft spot for Chamberlain. Yeah, quite rightly. Um, I think he's great. He's been, you know, there's lots of unlikable things about Chamberlain, but Robert Harris really humanizes him in his book, Munich, which was made. Yeah, I thought it. the film was very good with Jeremy Irons. I haven't seen the film, but I imagine Jeremy Irons would be very good as Chamberlain. Yeah, he was. Because yeah. what people get wrong about Chamberlain is Chamberlain was incredibly Im- sort of, he was a man of iron will and incredibly arrogant, sort of man of tremendous self-belief and not at all this sort of pooterish weed that we now think of him. Well, he's a man of the Midlands, wasn't he, Dominic? He was a man of the Midlands. He was like, right. he was like, he was like one of Tolkien's hobbits. Right, Tom. Um, so we've had a couple, there's another couple of prime ministers who fall by the wayside in the next few years. So obviously, uh, Eden, ill health. Well, but um, interesting, Churchill, who doesn't. Yeah, so Churchill, people are always going so to see Churchill. So people who've seen The Crown, which you haven't, Dominic, but the opening episode. No, I have of the seen Crown. the first episode. Okay. Of the Crown. And- it's kind of endless. The, the political plot in that is people endlessly trying to get rid of Churchill, isn't it? What are we going to do about Mr. Churchill? <laughs> so they're kind of going off and yes. Anthony Eaton sleeping off in a shooting party with George VI. And yeah. Well, basically what people like are that. doing to Churchill he is just constantly saying, uh, Winston, do you not think it's time? You know, the Mediterranean is <laughs> <very, you know. laughs> Yeah, Churchill then has another stroke and just refuses to go. <laughs> um, very Boris. So, so actually that what sense, that is a reminder of is that a prime minister is very hard to get rid of. If they don't want to go, they can be very hard to get rid of. So Churchill well, also, particularly if you just won the Second World War. Well, yeah, okay. That's I, mean, a, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a... So Eden, Eden goes because he's gone off to Goldeneye, Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica to... But he's ill, isn't he? After the Suez crisis, his health has collapsed. It's an interesting question about whether people would have tried to force him out had he not resigned. And it's still sort of... I think when he returned after Suez, Eden knew that the, the tide had turned against him. He had to go. I think that's. I think that is the lesson from Lord from Walpole through Lord North. The when the through Chamberlain that that if your whole foreign policy has gone tits up, you've yeah, got to Tom, go. We're going to come to an example later on, the Theresa May example of somebody who who stays on basically for well, a long time. You, know, you yeah, can be a zombie, but like a goat who's been bitten by a komodo dragon. Okay. Anyway. Uh, and Macmillan is the weirdest one, isn't it? Because he yeah, gets he... told he's got terminal cancer, and then he discovers, "Oh no, I haven't! I've resigned." <laughs> yeah, Damn! Well, I think no, hold on, guys. Macmillan kind of talks himself into thinking this. He's a terrible hypochondriac, Macmillan. So Macmillan, yes, he has. He wakes up in the night with a terrible pain in his bladder. He can't go to the toilet. He he gets a specialist in to see him. I'm just. I haven't really end up on Macmillan for this, so I'm, I'm doing this from memory. Um, and then he sort of says, oh my God, I'm going to die. I resign. And um, and then, yeah, exactly. Well, do you think he resigned? Do you think he resigned partly because he knew he was going to lose the next election? Well, this is the thing. You see, the tide it was clearly after Profumo, turned against Macmillan. It? Yeah. It was post-Profumo. Um, Cook doing the merciless impressions of him and things. He's been prime minister since 1957. Uh, 63. The momentum, the cultural temperature has changed. He's an interesting example of someone who resigns because of hypochondria. Yes, I guess so. But also, would he have resigned from hypochondria, Tom, two years earlier when he was in his pomp? I would no, say probably I would think not. Probably not. I think there's a bit of him that thinks, oh, the game is a sod at the game's but up anyway. This leads very, very neatly into your next choice. If it's someone who may actually have been incredibly ill, but doesn't resign. Yeah, Harold, Harold Wilson. So Harold Wilson is your. What's that? Eighth. Well, he's no seventh. He's eight, my seventh, seventh choice. You're but seventh. actually, I didn't choose him for 1976. I choose him for the late 60s because he's the one example, actually, of a prime minister who appears to be sunk, 
but it, I mean, people always would talk about uh, uh, Harold Wilson as a kind of India rubber man. But he doesn't resign. And he doesn't resign. And, so you can't have him for that. And That's... the constant plots against him, which, are which I mean, from 1966 to 1970, the newspapers are dominated by stories about people plotting. And Wilson doesn't resign. So the reason he's my number seven, Tom, is because he's the one who bucks the trend. No, that's that, that's that's not acceptable. Well, I've I've chosen him. No, he's you, you can only have people who resign. You can't have people who don't. No, because I think. But then, he, of course, he does resign in nineteen. Exactly. So that's why I thought you were doing it. Well, he, I've, I've surprised. He gets you. Alzheimer's, doesn't he? I've surprised you. Well, why does he resign in nineteen seventy six? It's not because he had. And Alzheimer's. he's being bugged by the by MI5 And it's not because he's been, he always said he would do just a couple of years. He'd always said this. In fact, he didn't expect to win in nineteen seventy four. But you know how he how he he breaks the news to the Queen, Tom? Uh, no, they're washing up in a cottage. Oh um, yes, on her estate in Balmoral. Yeah, I think it's Balmoral. I can't remember. Yes, and um, or Sandringham is it? No, they're, Balmoral. They're, they're 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 washing up after tea or something or lunch because the Queen loved him, didn't she? Queen got very well with Wilson. Yeah. yeah, and ever since people sort of said, "No, why did Harold resign? Why did?" Because they'd had all these plots to topple him in the late sixties. He'd been incredibly unpopular in 1968 after the devaluation of the pound. But here's the thing, and this is, I think, the the interesting thing. Why doesn't Wilson fall? Why doesn't somebody move against him? In his case, it's because he stacked his cabinet with what he called crown princes. So Roy Jenkins, um, James Callahan, Dennis Healy, Tony Benn, Anthony Cross, and all these kind of big figures, because he knew they all hated each other so much <laughs> yeah. that they would rather keep him on than give their rivals a chance to strike for the crown. And, you know, this is... I, I, I accept the, that. The problem for I, a prime minister is if they have a plausible rival, as Asquith yeah. did with Lloyd George... And successor. And However, so Wilson is a good way of escaping that trap. Yes, that's fine. But I still think that that, that is an illegitimate choice. You're outraged. Just, You're outraged at this choice of Harold Wilson, aren't you? You should choose him for his resignation. Reasons. I think the podcast should always surprise people. <laughs> yeah, all right. I think, you know, when, when we're not surprising our audience, Tom, when I'm not surprising you. Well, you have surprised me then, with that. Then the spark will die. I think that I, well... The spark will die if you continue to, if you persist in illegitimate lists that break the rules. <laughs> All right, there must be rules, Dominic. So anyway, okay. he resigned in 1976, and is that because he has Alzheimer's? No, um, I think he resigned because he'd, he'd always said he would do two years or so to his aides. Um, people didn't believe him because they didn't believe a word where Wilson said. So he, in fact, had told some of his own cabinet. He'd said, I'll probably go in about a year. I'll go in about six months or whatever. But people always said, oh, you can't believe a word Harold says. So when he did do it, they thought there must be something sinister behind it. And then um, he has a scandalous resignation on his list. The lavender list, the lavender uh, list. either written or not written, depending on whom you believe, by his political secretary, Marcia Williams, Lady Falconer. Lady, Lady Falconer, yeah. So that's quite – you see, I thought that's why you'd had it, because that's an entertaining resignation. Oh, it's a very interesting scandal and and Wilson's a great example of somebody who resigns and then basically vanishes. Might as well never have he goes existed. Goes off the uh, silly arse, doesn't he? Yeah, and people wears sort tight of shorts. <laughs> no, he was wearing the tight shorts before that. Was he? Uh, yeah, he was. <laughs> very strong look. Anyone wants to Google Harold Wilson tight shorts? <laughs> the shorts, the sort of Boy Scout look. Well, Wilson was a great fan of the scout. He was obsessed by boys, boy scouting. Um, I'm not. He wasn't obsessed by Boy Scouts. That's the wrong. <laughs> That's, that's no, he was obsessed by yes, by giving <laughs> but, uh, and bobbing. Yeah, so he dressed as a Boy Scout when he was on holiday. Right, we've really spiraled off. Okay, let's go to number eight because uh, Harold Wilson was well, no, shambles. Obviously, everyone knows what the next one will be. It's Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah, we've alluded to her in my brilliant introduction. Um, I think that we should. I mean, every, people basically know the story of Thatcher. Do that. Well, I think we should tell it very, very briefly, Tom, because some of our listeners, would you believe, are quite young. The reason why I don't want to go into this too. <laughs> It's because gonna I want to do a whole episode on it. Not just, I think we should do a week of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Lots of opportunity for So Mrs. Thatcher that. is your, in a way, you can, political time has become condensed. So Walpole's 20 years. For Mrs. Thatcher, it's 11 years. Well, or 10 years, because by 1989, I think people are tired of her. They're tired of her abrasive style. There's a first leadership challenge, which everybody forgets, in December 1989 by Sir Anthony Mayer. And she won that by 314 to 33. And even then, Tom, I mean, this puts Boris's result into context. Even then people said, oh, that's a very bad blow for the PM. 33 people voted against her. 
So then Jeffrey Howe resigned, her former chancellor. I mean, there's your point about chancellors and, and prime ministers and that relationship. Um, he resigned. He gave the resignation speech in the 13th of November, it's 1990. You're an opening batsman <laughs> and you find that your captain has broken your bat while you're in the pavilion. Yeah. Something like that. Ten minutes like words to that effect. Anyway. Yeah. That was that was a very nice Jeffrey Howe though. I, Thank I enjoyed you very that much. a lot. Thank you. Um so Michael Heseltine challenged her. Again, she actually won that first ballot, two oh four to, to hundred and fifty two. So that's what so she's in Paris, isn't she? At Fontainebleau. Yeah. Uh, and it's a kind of G seven conference. No, it's bigger than that. It's a the it's the summit to end the cold. Oh, of course it is. Yes, of course it is. Yes, yeah, so Gorbachev's there, there, they're all there. Gorbachev, yeah. yes, they're all there. And she comes out and John Sargent, who we've already mentioned as a, yeah. a strictly come dancing contender, he's standing there wondering and she just kind of bustles up behind him, doesn't she? We she fight doesn't. on, we fight to win. That's it. I fight on, I fight to win. But of course she doesn't because she then goes back and the very next to London, the very next evening, all her cabinet kind of troop in to see her. So all these sort of people, Ken Clark, William Waldegrave, uh, John Gummer, Chris Patton. And John Major, her chancellor, who has um, a, a serendipitous yeah. Uh, bad, t- sorry, Tom, terrible teeth. People can't see this, but I was pointing aggressively yes. at my teeth. <laughs> yes, you were, what? you were. So, so John, so John Major has a kind of diplomatic. It's um, got a wisdom tooth dentistry appointment, but that's not something you would fake, is it? I mean, mm, I don't know. Not, I mean, you think it's like Prince Andrew's COVID, Tom? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. That was the comparison that leapt to my mind as well. So, so basically, Thatcher goes. Yeah, even though she'd won that first ballot, she's hold beneath the waterline. So, so, so we'll do her later. But on yes. this theme of of bad blood between prime ministers and um, chancellors, the next big beast to be brought down is, of course, Sir Tony Blair. Yeah, your friend Tony. So, poor, so Tony, he and he's probably sunk from two thousand and five. I think so because he, of the Iraq War. Yeah, but also, I mean, his majority, which had previously been 167, was slashed to 66. In it's the not bad, though, is it? I mean, it's a, I know by Labour Party standards, three it's, elections. Absolutely, it's absolutely massive. Um, but uh, I think, don't you think that, that the Thatcher thing? So she, you said that people are bored with her by after ten years, and obviously, you know, lots of people are very fed up with her after about a week. Yeah, but but her own supporters are kind of fed up with her after after ten years. Well, the poll tax had alienated so many people. But I think there's a kind, there's a, a kind of unwritten rule has come in that ten years is enough. I think people absolutely. often say that. So yeah, obviously in absolutely. America, you know, there's an eight year limit eight on, years. On, on the presidency. Or I John Howard in Australia, or effectively you know, in British politics, there's a kind of ten year limit. I think so. And, and Blair think, had reached that limit. I think I think political capital is a diminishing resource. And I think you spend it from the first day in office. It's very hard to replenish. Your majorities, by and large, gradually go down. But what um, I would also say about Blair yeah. is that he effortlessly remained prime minister for 10 years or whatever, how long, however, however long it was. And then since then, for prime ministers, governing Brit- being prime minister of Britain has been like kind of riding a bucking bronco. I think that's true. But of course, he benefits from the fact the economy is in- incredibly rosy during well, his time that's... in office. So the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are, are very much sort of muffled, if a sling can be muffled, during Tony Blair's time in office. But but it's still notable, Tom, that people... His people turn, were happy. That people... T- <laughs> God almighty. His people were happy. What does and... Tony Blair got on you? That's what I, we want I just know. think... I, well, I, you you know, should I team just, up with Alistair Campbell on our sister podcast. And I just be- think that, that if you compare his premiership with what's followed... It's like the Antonine Age followed by the Age of Rust. The, the Roman age Empire. Of rust. You know, the it's age like of kind rust. Of... Well, anyway, listen. We should do how he fell before you. I mean, you're just yes, getting sorry. you're just getting tearful yes. now. Yes. Um, I'll have to stage an intervention like that woman at the dinner party about the Neville Chamberlain speech. <laughs> yeah. um, so, what brings him down? Funnily enough, is um, and this is again much forgotten. Uh, in the summer of 2006, Israel went to war against Hezbollah and attacked Lebanon. And um, uh, there was huge outrage within the Labour Party about this. Blair refused to condemn Israel. He said, you know. It'd be the wrong thing to do. Exactly. He said it was, you know, it was a complicated issue, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it, on the 5th of September, 17 Labour Party MPs, including junior defence minister and future um, Corbyn deputy Tom Watson and seven parliamentary private secretaries, uh, they sign this letter saying he's got to go. 
You know, he needs to, because Blair has already basically signed his own political death warrant by saying he won't fight another election. And this letter, I mean, it's only 17 MPs. And actually, you're Antonine Age Point. I mean, 17 MPs, by by today's standards, I mean, yeah. you know, that's nothing. But at the time, it seems like this sort of great... It's like the murder of Commodus. So, is, is it the murder of Commodus? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Just um, spinning this. Uh, yeah, what's that? What's what's the murder? So the murder of Commodus seems an outrageous event at the time, but later yeah, on, just but seems then, perfectly yeah, normal. Yeah, everyone's getting murdered yeah, yeah. in the crisis of the third century. Yes. Um, all right. So, but what about the what about the Granita thing? The whole thing, because essentially, Tony, Blair and Brown are the big allies. Me, Tony. Yeah, That's a I mean, is, 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 is that uh, is that not is that not a factor? I think it probably Brown's kind of seething resentment. Yeah, of course, it and is feeling a that he's owed the, the he's owed Downing Street. And that Blair's blo- not not sticking by his word. Blairites would say he could have lanced that boil by just sacking Gordon Brown sometime in his second term, probably, um, or moving him, or in some way just getting rid of him, and that Gordon Brown wouldn't have had the strength to launch it. But, but that is the kind of the classic example of a prime minister and chancellor locked in a kind of his death grip. But Tony Blair probably—it's hard to imagine a scenario in which any prime minister would get more than ten years. 10 years is a pretty good yeah, run. I think, he is yeah. brought down by his own MPs, but I mean, he was going to go within a couple of years. Anyway, it's hard to believe that Tony Blair would have fought the 2010 election and, and won it. Do you not think? I think, I think, he'd, I think he'd have won it. I don't think he would. I think, I, people I, think been... I think he was, I mean, I think his effect on the electorate was like the sirens on Odysseus. No, I think you think that until they lose. I mean, somebody said on when we advertised that we were doing this this, e- this evening, just before we did it, somebody on, on Twitter said, would Margaret Thatcher have won the 1992 election? But everyone hated stayed? her. She was abrasive. I think a lot of people were sick of Tony Blair. I think they became sick in due course. I think, I think that the kind of the weird thing about Blair was that people was kind of the delayed shock of the Iraq war. I mean, he still yeah, won well, the election after the Iraq war. It did, but, 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 Tom, in 2005, Labour lost, I think, 101 seats. Had they continued to lose at the same rate after a recession at the end of the decade? You see, I don't think happened. so. I don't think so, because I think, uh, I mean, Cameron didn't beat Brown. He didn't decisively beat Brown. He had to have a coalition. Yeah. And, and Brown was, although he did, you know, great things with the aftermath of the crash, I mean, he was he was not a popular prime minister, no, he and wasn't. he perhaps wasn't temperamentally suited to the job. So God, it's like Blair was inc- Peter Mandelson. This, <laughs> <laughs> I just think Blair was very. Temp- I, I think Blair actually a bit like Cameron was temperamentally suited to being a prime minister. People quite yeah. liked the idea of him as a prime minister. He was kind of you know he he, he behaved and looked like people imagine a prime minister should look like. Yeah, and I think that's quite an important. Anyway, I this think it's is very important. We're, we're spiraling off into a different playing, theme. Playing the part of being a prime minister yes. is massively important. I completely and, agree. And in that sense, Blair, Blair is a bit kind of Disraeli's. You know, he's he's a showman. He's he's an actor. Yeah. He plays he's a, the part. He's, he's a, he knows Tom, how to tickle the tummy of as, as the I have, As I have told the readers of the Daily Mail many times, he's a mountebank. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's 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 an upstanding mountebank. Well. Anyway, evangelical okay, so, mountebank. So, so, that's, so that's Blair Gaze. A contradiction in terms. And our final one, our final one, number 10, is Theresa May. Yes. So the interesting thing about Theresa May is how long she survives. Because she has that weird period right at the beginning when she has this incredible honeymoon. Everyone loves her, don't they? Her approval rating, she doesn't say anything. She never comes out of her office. Brexit everybody means thinks Brexit, she said. Everybody thinks. That's <laughs> she all she ever says. Brexit means Brexit. So everybody said, well, that's. I find that very Genius. powerful and persuasive. Um, and then she held the election and said that she liked running through fields of wheat and yeah. everybody turned against her. So she lost. Also, she said nothing has changed when everything had, everything changed. had changed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, the 8th of June, 2017. She lost her majority. I mean, that, that, that night when the result came through, people were speculating is, you know, will she be gone in days and weeks? And the extraordinary thing is she survives for almost two years. So she goes all the way through to December 2018, and then she has a confidence vote because the sort of the Tory ultras the, of the you know the, the successors, I suppose you could say, um, in some ways to the to the ultras who had done for Robert Peel, uh, they force a confidence vote in December 2018, which she wins by 200 votes to 117. And of course, the tremendous irony is that at the time the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and Co are queuing up to yeah. say, <laughs> well. <laughs> So she has to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, yeah, I mean, that, that's the extraordinary thing, the shamelessness of it. And now Bertie Smog says he was mistaken. <laughs> <And> <laughs> one is enough. One is enough. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So I've just got it here. Um, so when when that that result came through against Theresa May, this is a very bad result for the Prime Minister. 170 votes against her, much worse than she thought, uh, and says that she should resign because the overwhelming majority of backbenchers have voted against her. And now he's saying, ah, one's enough. Yeah. One will do. That's fine. I think, I think. What are you fussing about? I think Jacob Rees-Mogg knows very well that basically there's only one conceivable person <laughs> who would ever give him, have a, him job. As a minister. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and that yeah. one happens to be the prime minister. So, um, she also won a confidence vote in the House of Commons. So that was January 2019. She won by 325 to 306. And I think anyone who remembers this period, well, we all remember it. I mean, this appeared to be a period in which Theresa May was facing confidence votes every three days of various yeah. kinds. It was either confidence votes or what votes on Brexit. Bills. Meaningful, meaningful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just awful. Just, I just blanked the whole, I yeah. just, oh, everything there were, about there were, there were endless votes on, I mean, for our overseas listeners, there were just endless votes on abstruse and incredibly impenetrable Brexit arrangements in which which all were defeated <laughs> in various combinations. Kind of angry people from Ulster shouting at her and oh, just terrible. Um but um yes yeah, she she so early twenty nineteen she has all these um uh all these votes. But she lingers on till May twenty nineteen. And I think the lesson of that I mean there are there are two lessons. I think one is as I said, political capital is a diminishing resource. I think when it's gone, you almost never, ever get it back. It's hard to think of. I would say actually Wilson is the only example I can really think of, modern example, of somebody who appeared to lose all his political capital in the, in the late 1960s, but then managed to, to. Well, he becomes, he's in, he's in office, but not in power, would you say? Yes, he's very buffeted by his. I mean, he's not, he's not exactly Jenkins, master Callahan. Of he's, face, he's, is he? He's well. He spends an enormous amount of time basically playing political chess with his own cabinet. Yeah. Um, and Wilson is a great survivor. He's very wily. Uh, he's also a likable. I think that matters because I think people ultimately don't want to move against him because yeah. they. He's a nice. He, he he's a nice person. So I always say of Howard Wilson, he's the prime minister you'd want as your next door neighbour to borrow a yeah. hose or some such. Yeah. But um, do the washing up like the Queen. But yes, exactly. But so political capital diminishes. But the other lesson I think is that from Theresa May or indeed from Tony Blair, actually, is that you can be a long time dying. So even mm -hmm. though the game appears to be up, so it's quite hard. Gordon Brown would definitely agree with us. It's quite hard to get someone out of number 10 okay. if they don't want to so, go. So uh, we're doing this you know, off, off the back of the, uh, the no confidence result against Johnson, which he's won. And we, we talked about Neville Chamberlain being an honourable man who... <laughs> yes. <laughs> does the decent thing um i mean boris would never do that i mean his whole perp the whole point of his premiership is to be in power and in fact for several you know for a while now it seemed like the the, the main purpose of the current government is basically to keep johnson in power now he's fa he's famously on record time of saying his his favorite film is the godfather part two and um, i thought it was jaws oh he, i think he's how unlike him to have given different answers <laughs> at uh <laughs> But, you yeah. know, he, he, he obviously has this sort of sense of himself as this sort of Michael Corleone figure who will well, sacrifice. Well, the big dog. Save big dog, isn't it? Is the, the, uh, Boris's backers have been running this operation. He's the big dog. Yes. And his opponents uh, wanted to have Operation Rinker to, um, to get rid of him. So Rinker, for those of you who don't know, if you should listen to our Jeremy Thorpe podcast. Rinker was a dog cruelly murdered um, on the orders of the lib leader of the Liberal Party. Um, <laughs> Well, kind of. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, do go and get it. Yes. Okay. So, do you think that? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, the whole basis of this episode is that he's now finished, but maybe he isn't. Maybe he'll stagger on. Maybe he'll win the election. Do you well, think? okay. So, I think um, historians make horrendous political pundits, as, as everybody knows who's ever read my columns. But um, I think. 148 of your own MPs against you. I think that's that's ultimately terminal. Maybe not immediately, but I think it's very hard to go into a general election yeah. saying, you know. So, so the Thatcher lost a that Thatcher won a vote of confidence and resigned almost immediately. Yeah, well, she won a leadership uh, May, election. May, yeah. May, May uh, won a vote of confidence, staggered on for what, six months, I think, and then resigned. Yes. John Major won a vote of confidence, staggered on, fought the election and got absolutely Mullered. murdered in yeah. the next election. 
He so did. I would reckon that if if Johnson doesn't resign, then he will lead the Conservatives to a massive defeat. Yeah, and the my prognostication, but who you know, as you say, who knows? To pick up on your John Major point, Tom, we didn't mention John Major at all, but in July 1995, John Major faced a leadership challenge from John Redwood. Uh, Put up or shut up. <laughs> yes, people may remember that tremendous press conference that John Redwood gave, where he was surrounded. <laughs> Yeah. People who I think People. can fairly be described as the more colourful end of the Conservative Party. Stressed in blazers. Terrible yeah. <laughs> blazers. Anyway, um, Major won by a, a, a pretty big majority. It was 218 votes. And John Redwood, his challenger, won 89. So a pretty sizable margin. Major's private target, Tom, was 215. So he only beat it by three. And he decided he would resign if he didn't get. Um, 215. But again, Major is, I think it's fair to say, a man with, I mean, not a perfect man, but a man with perhaps a little more integrity than um, than Boris Johnson. And I I say that as I'm not a sort of great Boris hater, um, but I think it would be very hard for anybody to claim that he was a man, a paragon of virtue. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And the, um, the, the, the Corleone comparison. Um, Yeah. You don't, he's, he's, he'd have to be dragged, Drag that in a coffin, basically. I mean, they've got two by elections coming, uh, which I think yeah. they'll probably both lo- they'll lose both of them. And they're important, aren't they? Because they're one's Red Wall and one is kind of Tory heartlands. Exactly. So, and I think yeah. you know, especially one of the things that did for Margaret Thatcher was the economy turning against her. She lost control of inflation. Interest rates went up. Sort of Tory homeowners are feeling the pinch Infl- with inflation going up. And likely to go higher, but by the end of the year, it's very hard to see how things will get easier for Boris Johnson. And you know, he he will make. If I was an if I was a Tory Party MP, I would think about it this way. Um, he's going to become a very convenient scapegoat a year from now. You dump him, then you get a new leader, and you go in saying, "Well, we've turned the page. You know, we've we've learned the lessons, all that sort of thing." So I think we could easily be start. here yep. doing this um, podcast again. <laughs> We'd ten put it out, can't we? At half past ten. Well, we could put the same podcast. Yeah, with the same disagreement with Harold we just, Wilson. Yeah, we just change it, tweak it a bit at the beginning, so people okay. don't notice. That, that's a terrible insight into, the, into your. <laughs> I hope the yeah, listeners aren't too shocked by that. But that's the kind of um, beady-eyed wheeler dealing that ruthless stay ahead in politics, isn't it? That's what David Lloyd George would have done. It is. It's the David Lloyd George option, right? I think we've done enough, um, and our poor producers have to go off and. Lick this into shape. Yeah. Tom, you, so we you, should probably. You, Tom's going to go probably, and catch up with Love Island. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I, I think we should do the uh, the Love Island episode, but we can discuss this. We definitely should do it. We're so going to do it. And all the extra listeners we would have attracted um, <laughs> because of our talk of, of, of the Earl of Wilmington. Um, <laughs> I think they'll stay for, for Love Island. So, yeah, yeah it's win win. Well, so. Okay. All right. Well, um, thank you for joining this. All very spontaneous, all very exciting. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, we will be back on Thursday, won't we, with uh, Denunzio, the first yes, fascist. The first fascist. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.